protein won't grow muscle for you. You have to tell muscle to grow. So the first step in putting on weight on, on gaining muscle is the exercise. There we go. All right. So yeah, we're back. This is what our fifth episode now, and we're just going to finish up protein. This will be a shorter one, hopefully, um, because we just wanted to talk. We didn't talk about like uh, protein as it applies to um, exercise and nutrient timing and the types of protein supplements. Like I actually don't really consider protein a supplement like whey or powdered proteins as I do a convenience. Um, it's a lot easier to carry around a little powder than it is, you know, cooked chicken breast or something like that. Um, you know, but we'll call them supplements because that's what they are considered. So yeah, this that's what this episode is going to be about mostly is how to uh, approach that side, the uh, the exercise and supplementation of protein. So cool. Yeah, yeah. So um, really, we always kind of try to work in something pop culture, fitness trends, things like that. You know, we can't not have this episode we can't have this episode not talk about the death of black panther so chadwick yep. boseman died of colon cancer i believe I believe so yeah um so that's sad that does kind of lead me into i'm really trying to find a way to talk about preventing cancer with nutrition mm-hmm. and not seeming like i'm blaming him for no his and his disease colorectal is one of the bigger cancers that I mm-hmm. think there is a large nutrition impact on it. Um, but there, I mean, it's, it's massively, there's just lifestyle genetics. I mean, there's a yeah. lot that factor into it. Like, I mean, and that, the, the, I think cancer in and of itself is, is misunderstood. Like cancer is not a single disease that you can say like, this is cancer. This is how it works. It's really a litany of anything where there's these rogue cells that are proliferating and causing uh, disjunction in the body. So it's, it's not just like, Oh, cancer, there's, this is the cause. This is the solution. Um, you know, it's still something we're learning a lot about. Um, I, you know, we don't know enough about nutrition and how, I mean, like, yes, it's, it should make sense that it's impactful with it, you know, but every person that's claimed that they cured cancer or beat cancer from nutrition wound up being uh farce you know they were lying yeah um there's all kinds of this some girl on youtube claimed that veganism cured her cancer and then died of cancer like a few months after i mean like you know so it's um i know that that garlic is the big one garlic has very powerful anti-carcinogenic properties the issue is you have to chop the garlic and let it sit for about 15 minutes before the, the reaction occurs once the cell is ruptured and after about 15 20 minutes it becomes stable so you can cook with it, you know, but if you don't pre chop your garlic and let it rest, it's, you're losing, it's, you're cooking those benefits out of the garlic. Hmm. Um, you know, so I, uh, new every day. Yeah. You know, but it's, it, it, it's, unless you dive into it and understand that kind of stuff, people think, Oh, ginger, it's great for, you know, inf- uh, what is it? Immune system. There's no evidence about ginger affecting your immune system. It actually also is anti-carcinogenic, you know? So, a lot of this stuff people claim and there's no backbone to it. So, yeah, but, um, that's the, yeah, cancer's, um, it's crazy. So my mom's actually an oncology nurse and mm-hmm. that was, uh, that kind of gives me a little bit of passion about cancer and I'm kind of, I'm thinking about maybe doing, getting a specialty in it when I'm a dietitian and everything like that. So kind of 
distant in the future, but that was something I, I was, I would always ask her growing up, you know, how do you prevent cancer? And the issue is like, like you said, we don't really know enough about it because there's so many different kinds. We don't exactly know what's going wrong. So, but, yeah. um, it's kind of, you know, everybody would say, okay, we'll follow what the American cancer society says, which is diet and exercise. Yeah. So that's all, always a good thing, but I, it kind of seems like when you don't know what to say, say diet and exercise. <laughs> right. You know, but yeah. stress, lifestyle, mm-hmm. like wind pollution and air quality, yeah. like that kind of stuff can all factor into it. Yeah. Um, I do have to give props to his like family and friends, like uh, Bozeman's crew, because nobody knew about his cancer. Mm-hmm. He didn't want anybody to know. No, Usually that true. stuff leaks, you know, yeah. like that's props to his uh his his family and stuff. Yeah. I thought that was cool. I mean, he had it for six years or something. Yeah, I'd have you know cancer for six minutes and everybody would know about it. Right. Like, yeah. It's... That's um, one. I'm a big mouth, but <laughs> out. Yeah. Um, that's that's yeah. impressive. But but uh, yeah. So I don't know. I the trend I'm that's been bothering me lately is the copy paste dietitians yeah. you see, and um, no knock on these you know sales accounts, whatever you want to call them, you know, uh, Libby Rothschild, I think is the big one for female dietitians. And then you have like, uh, um, Tony Steffen and Xander Fryer and stuff like that. Like they, they, they teach you Instagram sales. They teach you how to gain clients organically through Instagram. And, and if that's the, the grind you want, that's great. But the, th- the problem I've noticed is that they, it's all the same account over and over again. Like they don't take the information and do anything new with it. It just seems like every single person that takes this one account has the same post where it's side by sides. And, you know, I think the latest one is like someone dancing and then pointing and like words pop up on the screen. And is that like like, TikTok videos? Yeah, it is. But it's, but uh, first off, a 15 minute or 15 second video of you dancing and pointing at words is not a good way to tackle body image issues Mm -hmm. and eating disorders. You know, like I get you're having fun with it, but. The other thing I've noticed is sometimes they put stuff up there and the words just like you don't even have time to read them. It's like, yeah. I don't want to watch your video six times because you put a paragraph up. You know, yeah. it's like and I just feel like there's no character. It's just mm-hmm. this is what works. So I'm going to follow it to a T. And I think it also feeds back into our first episode where it's like if everybody's telling you have a cookie every day, you know, that's it, it, it's starting to get like we're, we're moving away from even like I've seen posts that seem like. Oh, um, it doesn't matter. Eat whatever the hell you want. You know, don't worry about food quality. Don't read nutrient labels. Don't, I mean, it's like, it, it it's shifting to an extreme away from good practical nutrition to everybody's a soft, delicate flower. You know, like, no, you need tough love. You need people to be tight with what they're doing. You need people to meet goals as much as change their mentality and mindset. It's both. And it's, I feel like the shift is moving all the way to like, eat whatever the hell you want, you know, like just love yourself. It's good advice, but you ain't going to lose weight doing that. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting with that because I, God, I, I can't stand seeing that. The best example I have, um, there was, I went searching for dietitians on Instagram to follow. I followed one, the first post of theirs I saw, they were holding this thing of cotton candy that was the size of their head. And the caption said, want to know how you can eat things like these every day and still lose weight. And it's just, it was 
so, so marketing and so much geared towards grabbing your attention and getting your clients that I just immediately unfollowed them because it felt right. like it felt like it was perpetuating misinformation. Like, no, you can't, you can't, like a dietitian shouldn't be telling you you can eat cotton, amount of cotton candy the size of your head and at all. You're, that's just right. not going to be healthy for you. But if, hey, if you're going to a baseball game, sure. Yeah. Get a big old cotton candy. Yeah. You know, Don't that's fine. But like, day. right. But and then I think touching on your point is like, I think it's a trap. Like you said, mm-hmm. it's a marketing trap, but then it's also a trap where if I'm so focused on the mindset and telling my clients they can eat donuts and cotton candy every day, they are stuck being my client. Mm-hmm. They are paying me for little results and little, they will stay having little to no results and continue to be in my employee. Whereas my approach is, I like to educate. I want people to understand the the science and themselves and then graduate. My clients should not be with me for more than six months to a year. Yeah. You know, but if I'm good enough at my job, they will give me recommendations because of what they learned and how much easier nutrition is for them. Yeah. Um, And subtle plug, you can work with Blair if you want to reach out to him on Instagram or through here, something like that. So had to throw yeah. that in for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Go ahead. I yeah. mean, by all means, yeah. I've, I've my client load is picking up. I've gotten yep. some recommendations, and it's it's you know we're we're building. Yeah. So, um, by all means, and reach out. Um, the the marketing aspect is one thing because yes, it does grab people's attention. It does get them to be to become your clients. You can counsel them, and then you can get them healthier and benefit them as you can just being a dietitian versus just a general Instagram health coach. But it's that it feels dishonest to see a lot of the things that we're seeing on Instagram where it, it just feels like you're, you're lying. Yeah. Kind of like, yes, yes, you can have snacks. You can have little treats, whatever you want to call them to make sure that you're not restricting yourself. But there's an exaggeration online, which is the issue that I have with it. Yeah, I'm terrible at marketing, especially online. I'm a proof is in the pudding kind of guy, which yeah. I mean, like I said before we started recording, I, I actually brought somebody on my team to help with marketing and distribution. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like I would rather claw my way up to a client load just by doing the services, providing the services I want to provide and having it work than putting a bunch of copy and blasting people. Like mm-hmm. I just, it's just not me, but yeah. Let's uh, let's move on to protein, yeah. or, or this yeah. episode is going to wind up being another hour and a half. Yeah, one. yeah so. exactly. We got some football so, games um, to watch. We're going to go over just to give you a little overview of. Um, we're going to talk about protein and resistance training, or or weightlifting, um, protein and endurance, and then we're going to talk about like timing, and that includes nighttime consumption. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I like to call it taking back the night, and then we'll go into. Um, like the types of protein, whey, casein, and plant-based are the big ones, you know, but we'll kind of, we'll, we'll kind of break those things down. Um, and then we'll finish up with, uh, some myth busting and a little sign off. So, um, let's dive into it. I think you read the studies on, um, the protein and resistance training. Yeah. The, the resistance and endurance training. I I looked more into the timing and that kind of stuff. So, yeah. So, um, there's always this debate. Do you need to have a protein shake before your workout, after your workout, classic things you'll run into when you talk to, you know, your average gym bro or just anybody who's starting to work out. There's a lot of confusion out there. So, um, Blair actually sent me, sent me a couple of studies that they cleared up. So, 
One thing that was super, super important with these studies that they stressed on was that you need consistency first. Mm -hmm. Make sure you're getting adequate calories and getting adequate protein initially. Without that, it doesn't seem to matter whether you have your have protein after a workout or not because if you're not consistent with – it's prioritizing things. If you're not consistent with your calories and protein intake, period, your performance isn't going to increase. You're not going to build muscle. It's just – Consistency, consistency, consistency. Yeah, I mean, and, and people do argue that total daily protein consumption matters more than post-workout or anything mm -hmm. of that nature. Um, I have an article on, so I'm a, BodyLogix is a Canadian-based company that I've done a lot of work with. I, I ordered from them with the Dolphins, and they let me write blogs on their website. And I have a whole one. I can post it in the, the show notes on protein recommendations, but it boiled down to like, it was kind of debunking the 20 grams per meal mm -hmm. myth. And it was more looking at, um, it's, it, it should be like a, a calculation based on body size. So 0.4 grams per kilogram of body weight per meal. Hmm. It is about your, that sweet spot where you're going to hit your protein goals. And that's assuming five feedings a day. Yeah. Um, you know, but so, you know, obviously it's never going to be that cut and dry, but that's, that's the aim with protein mm -hmm. as far as the daily consumption. But yeah. What's um, the, what's the, I know, um, we're trying to keep this a little bit shorter just cause all of our episodes tend to go over what we expect. So we'll keep this a little bit brief, but what's the significance in five meals a day? Cause there's a lot of confusion around that. Whereas people say, Oh, eat six meals a day because it boosts your metabolism, which is um, I don't think it matters. Okay. I think I honestly eat when you're hungry. I think what it boils down to is for me, 0.4 grams per kilogram is like 34, 35 grams of protein. Mm -hmm. That's a decent amount of protein. I mean, that's a scoop and a half. That's a, yeah. you know, a six ounce chicken breast. So like imagine turning that into three meals, all of a sudden I'm looking at 60 grams of protein per meal, you know, so spacing it out gives you you know, and that can be 40 grams for breakfast, 20 grams for a snack for, mm -hmm. you know, it doesn't have to be 34 grams every meal. Um, you know, but I think that's just what it boils down to is, okay. is the, the likelihood that you are going to eat that much protein. Yeah. In sitting. Just um, easier, easier control over it. Yeah. But, um, um, so going back to this study though, ultimately what the, what the study found was that if you were taking protein either before or after your workouts, you did have better recovery, but the performance didn't seem to increase unless you were able to take advantage of that better recovery. Um, but so I'm not too too versed in sports and sports nutrition. So what what would something like taking advantage of that recovery be for the average person, Blair? Um. So I think like not like. Limiting two a days, oh, not overexerting, you know, not overtraining. Not every exercise session has to be a ten out of ten. You know, a lot of people, if you don't sweat, if you're not sore, it doesn't count. And like, that's not true. You know, like it's okay, you know, to just do yoga one day, to have a day or two off, you know, and just go for a walk. Be active, but not exercise. Which is we it actually a lot of the research is showing that um, neat expenditure, NEAT, which is uh, non-exercise activated thermogenesis matters more for weight loss than the actual exercise, the, you know, like going to the gym or whatever, because that's parking in the back and walking to the store. It's taking your dog on a longer walk. You know, it's movement. That's not dancing, you know, like that's not exercise. It is movement. It is calorie burning, but I know I would never go and like dance and be like, Oh, I just exercised, you mm -hmm. know? 
Um, so that kind of stuff is, is, I think, where it's at, that sweet spot. Um, but you kind of touched on it, and I think it's important to note. I always get in this argument, especially, you know, we talk a lot about weight loss uh, as far as how these things are, uh, fit in. Yeah. Because that's most people's issue in the United States is they need to lose weight. Um, but I ha- I always get perturbed when, like, someone – it seems to be okay to tell someone who's thin that they need to gain weight. They need to eat more. Um, and But if you tell a you know, obese person they need to lose weight, you're offensive. Um, here's the thing is protein won't grow muscle for you. You have to tell muscle to grow. So the first step in putting on weight on, on gaining muscle is – the exercise, you know, lifting weights signals the cascade. It signals the inflammatory process that says, Hey, this muscle's broken down and ready to build. And then protein is just the building blocks that put it there, you know? So keeping that in mind is important. Like you said, it's the consistency, it's the routine, it's the actual exercise that matters most as far as building muscle. Um, and then protein is the recovery. Um, you know, but there's research showing that pre pre exercise protein increases fat burn during the um, exercise session. Hmm. It was one study, so how accurate? You know, yeah. Like we said, you, you know, take one study with a grain of salt. You know, but that's promising. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I mean, one study or a hundred studies. So you'll be able to tell a little bit more of what's you can tease out what's true. But the whole point of science, like we touched with Dr. Foley, is that you can repeat it and you should repeat it. So even if there were a hundred studies, let's look at what's being repeated too. So right, yeah. Like you said, it is there? it is promising. Um, that's really cool. I didn't know that actually. Yeah, um, yeah. There's too many studies on protein to like cover all of them. Yeah, you know. So I tried to um, keep it basic, but you know, and I, I think we're seeing more research on endurance training for the longest time. Protein, it was it was protein for lifting and and carbs for endurance. Mm-hmm. You know, but there is muscle breakdown that occurs during endurance and ultra endurance and that kind of stuff. As a matter of fact, um, we at FSU did a uh, research on the inflammatory markers following uh, Ultraman races. And Ultraman, if you're unfamiliar, is like an Ironman on steroids. Mm -hmm. Um, I believe it's a like three and a half mile swim, uh, followed by a 60 km bike ride. And the next day is like 110 km bike ride. And then the final day is a double marathon Jesus, or maybe it's a single marathon, but it's still, it's yeah, it's like, it's insane, but these people got through it and their inflammatory markers were higher than like a condition you see often in the military called rhabdomyolysis, which is overexertion to the point that iron is breaking out of your muscles Mm -hmm. and you are urinating blood. So, so military level rhabdomyolysis like people going through boot camp and being literally broken down to a cellular destruction had less inflammatory markers than i mean i get it it's acute it's single post this race and they they start to dwindle but that's that's astounding you know so there is muscle breakdown there is inflammation and protein is great for that repair process um you know so i think it's it's important to note if you are an endurance athlete that it's worth you know jumping in making sure you're getting enough protein and not just considering that a resistance training or weightlifters yeah. vice. Yeah. And and really so what the uh, study that Blair sent me also on protein and endurance was it was looking at what the RDA the recommended dietary allowance is for protein which is the classic 0.8 grams per kilogram of body weight. And what this study was saying was that 
if you're if you're an endurance athlete, it's that's you need to go you need to have way more protein than that. So it estimated using nitrogen balance, which mm. nitrogen balance is if you're not familiar with it, protein contains nitrogen and that's what your body uses in that protein itself. And so if you're in negative nitrogen balance, that means you need to eat more protein. If you're in positive nitrogen balance, that means you're eating enough protein. Yeah. But so but, testing, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. How do you, that's, I mean, how do you really test your nitrogen balance? You know, I mean, yeah. it, it wouldn't be protein consumed versus the amount of nitrogen in your urine. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so, but that's, you know, it's tough. Um, I know ISSN recommends this. If you are even remotely active, 1.2 grams per kilogram is your starting point, mm -hmm. And then all the way up to two grams per kilogram. Yeah. This um, one, you know. this one said for endurance athletes that you want to be looking at 1.65, so we'll say 1.7 yeah. to 1.85, so 1.7 to 1.9 grams per kilogram. So really, if you can get a lot of protein in your day, shoot for two grams per kilogram of body yeah, weight or, or gram per pound. Yeah, I or mean, gram it, per pound. It's, it's, gram it's per pound's a way. little higher than it's 2.2 grams per kilogram, but still. Yeah. If you aim for gram per pound and you fall short, you're still probably within that 1.2 plus range. Yeah. Um, but I mean, this is beneficial for weight loss. It's not mm -hmm. just a, it, like eating more protein means you're likely eating less, you know, processed foods, fats, carbohydrates, you, you know, and you will see better body composition results and weight loss, fat loss and things like that. So it doesn't just have to be if you're an athlete, like aiming for a gram per pound of, of protein is is beneficial no matter who you are yeah so and the last protein episode i believe you brought up that there was a study showing that if people eating a high protein diet burned 400 more calories than just a regular diet they consume so, 400 more calories consume, than the low yeah, protein group and still lost weight so yeah. lost the same amount of fat so yeah, yeah. there we go so um, there's i mean thermic effect of food protein has a pretty high the highest thermic effect of food yes Maybe, yeah okay so you're um, going to just be spent expending more calories to break that down. You'll still be consuming a net positive calories. There's no such thing as negative calorie food, but you'll, you'll be a little bit warmer. Your body's going to have to work a little bit harder. And so that could be where that is contributing at 400 extra calories. Yeah. And protein is just very resistant to storage. Mm -hmm. It doesn't want to be used as energy. It doesn't want to store as fat. It wants to help make hormones. It wants to yeah. develop bone and muscle. Like it's, you know, um, and I, so talking about like the you mentioned, like consuming protein, protein post-exercise, um, didn't necessarily show the benefit that people would assume. And I think we touched on it or I touched on it in the research episode about how that one study where it said that, you know, you have to consume protein within 30 seconds of finishing your workout, blah, blah. But that stemmed from, um, a time trial study where when people had a time trial, if they consumed carbs within 30 minutes of the finishing the first time trial, they improved their performance in the second time trial if it was within eight hours of the first. So it was a very specific situation and it was a based a carbohydrate reload study or a glycogen replenishment, not protein. So that dwindled down to you have to eat within 30 minutes or you lose all your gains you know, and protein still follows people say that kind of stuff. If getting protein in within 30 minutes benefits you, great. By all means, get your protein in within 30 minutes. But you actually have like a two-hour optimal window of protein consumption. to, And that's an optimal window. 
you know, if you get protein within two hours of your workout, you will more optimally build muscle. If it's after two hours, it's just not optimal. It still will build muscle, you know, like, and I mean, let's do things optimally, obviously, but at the same time, if it's not realistic for you to mainline protein within 30 minutes, then don't, yeah. you know? Yeah. And I do, um, the last little thing about what something I thought about with this study on protein and endurance exercise. So the recommendation is always eat more eat more whole foods. Sorry, let's con- let's finish that statement. Yeah. Eat more whole foods, um, just kind of diet and exercise a- and exercise there. So really what this is saying to me, if our recommendations are eat better and exercise and the studies are showing that you should probably be eating more protein if you're exercising, why is the RDA still so low? Yeah, because RDAs are set for people to not see deficiencies. It's basically the amount needed to That's not die, point, yeah. you know. Um, and and we can we can throw a little myth in there, you know, early. But one of the myths I didn't even write this on the show notes, but one myth that I can't stand is the um, muscle weighs more than fat, muscle burns more calories than fat, all that kind of stuff. Muscle is very metabolically inert at rest. It, your body does not want to lose muscle. Um, you know, so no, it's not burning 54 calories per pound, because if you do the math, uh, you know, every time you add, if you had 10 pounds of muscle, you're not burning 540 more calories at rest, you know, um, what it really boils down to, I dove into it is it's your oxygen debt, you know? So when you exercise, your body starts to heat up and things change and it uses a lot of energy and you're breathing a lot and your body has a, a debt that it owes itself when you finish exercising and different exercises have different lengths of oxygen debt and deficit, you know, but continually having an oxygen debt or deficit, which basically means regularly exercised muscles burn a lot of calories, you know? So if Nick and I were the same height, weight, age, everything, we were clones of each other. And I exercised every day for 40 minutes and he exercised twice a week for two hours. And the timing wound up being about the same, I would have a better physique. I would have more energy expenditure, a better resting metabolic rate because I'm using my muscles every day and he's doing it twice a week, yeah. you know? So that's going to be another it, note on consistency. Right. Exactly. So, yeah. And, um, um, one thing that I've kind of been thinking about and Blair will be able to tell me if I'm, if this thought process is off or not, but so when you're, when you're exercising, you're breathing heavy. That's because your your muscles, your body needs to make energy. And without going too in-depth into the process, oxygen is there to help with that. So when you have an oxygen debt, what that's kind of signaling to me is that your muscles, even though you're resting, they're recovering, they're using energy, and that's part of what's called excess um, post-oxygen consumption. Excess post exercise, post exercise, epoch is yeah, yeah you'll hear your epoch, yeah. So, um, is that kind of the right thought yeah, process? Yeah, yeah. So, of- if you want to break it down, and this is a very gross oversimplification, but metabolism and energy in the body is more or less just a complicated system of carbon exchange, how carbon moves around and changes different, like turns into different molecules, and oxygen movement. You know, so iron, one of the more important um, 
minerals is because so your blood has hemoglobin which is iron molecules attached to a protein and oxygen binds to that and moves through the blood and then your muscles have myoglobin and they take oxygen and store it in the muscle you know so you oxygen moves around it it starts the whole energy electron transport chain is what it's called you know but all of that is requires oxygen you know so yeah it is a debt like oxygen is needed by the muscles you breathe it in it, there's this whole transfer system of oxygen and that's how all of this works is your muscles need oxygen so it's taking it from your blood and your body and you're breathing in to try to get as much oxygen as possible so yeah i mean i mean a lot of times you measure the actual energy expenditure by your breath the amount of oxygen liters per minute your vo2 things like that tell you how much energy you're using there's a calculation for that i think it's five calories per liter of oxygen whatever you know but like there's there's a way to figure it out um it's complicated but yeah i mean it, that's basically what it boils down to yeah. sweet um so yeah one thing that i think is important is um we i i wanted to talk about nighttime feeding um you know so for the longest time everyone don't eat at night don't eat at night and you know even some of these uh what's it called you know, diet copy paste dietitians you talked about earlier have posts where they say like, you know, the cookie doesn't magically have four thousand calories after seven p.m. You know, calories are the same, but basically what what the research is is that mixed meals, high calorie mixed macronutrient meals, so like a standard dinner, close to bedtime shows an increase in weight. People who eat most of their calories at night tend to have more obesity. Um, I think that interferes with sleep quality and interferes with hormone production and things like that. But what the research is showing is that small single macronutrient feedings within 30 minutes of bedtime under 200 calories um, show improvements in like resting metabolic rate. Um, some have shown improvements in sleep quality um, and satiety uh, i think casein actually very specifically casein before bed showed an improvement in um satiety the following day people were not as hungry when they woke up and improvements in resting metabolic rate you know so there's a lot of benefits to small feedings before bed um and that included carbohydrate or fat like they did with cereal like small things so it doesn't have to be protein my argument is one protein's tough to get a lot of sometimes Two, you might as well take something that's helping your body recover and build as opposed to just you're likely getting enough carbohydrates during the day, um, you know, but having 200 calories of ice cream is still beneficial to not eating anything like there are metabolic benefits. So, um, you know, if you want to wake up and feel less hungry, casein's your friend. You know, it's it's a good protein to throw in there. And um, a lot of that research has come out of Florida State. That's something we were big on is is that nighttime with taking back the nighttime. Um, you know, but it's not isolated to protein. Protein just kind of has a little extra benefits to it outside of, you know, it helps with, you know, sleep and that kind of stuff. Yeah. So what would be, um, just to kind of keep it, keep a little bit practical for anybody who's super new to nutrition and everything, what would be kind of your recommendation as a quick little snack before bed? Um, maybe like a Greek yogurt with a little bit of fruit on it. Um, cottage cheese, you could have a handful of nuts, you know, a little bowl of cereal. But the thing is, you just have to be careful with your portion sizes mm -hmm. because, you know, like pasta, people typically eat three servings of it, not the yeah. one, you know, so like 
cereal can quickly be a 600 calorie meal if you're using whole milk and mm -hmm. you know you you pour a bowl and a half of it yada yada so you know that is one time where i will say like measure make sure you're eating a specific amount of food and not going crazy or just a protein shake you know and this this could be a good segue into the types of uh protein supplements they have out there but um you know that's why I say it's convenient. You know, I don't necessarily want to eat a chicken breast before bed or have two cheese sticks. It might not sit well on my stomach versus, you know, scoop of protein and water, chug it down, ready to, ready for bed. Yeah. You know. And before we go into the type of protein supplements there, um, I do kind of want to note, this is anecdotally for me, when I have something that's higher in carbohydrates before bed, I actually wake up starving. So yeah. I'm probably overeating a little bit, shooting my blood sugar up. And by the time I wake up, it's bottomed out and I'm my ghrelin's through the roof, everything like that. Um, so that's where things like protein come in. It'll keep you fuller for longer. It won't spike your blood sugar as crazy as like the ice cream would. So it's kind of what it, what it's sounding to me is that it's good to eat something, something small, but when it comes to what you're eating, that'll affect your next morning right yeah um yeah and you know i think it's just and and be practical about it you know mm -hmm. if you have dinner at nine but you don't go to bed until midnight you know it's not realistic to not eat for those three hours you know so plan on having a small snack before bed around 10 or 11 um you know but if you eat dinner at nine and you go to bed by 10 30 you might not need that you know you've digested it's it, you know just go to bed yeah um yeah, so there's the major types of protein supplements, and, and so there's three primary categories. I guess you could split it into, like, milk-based and plant-based, um, you know, but mainly the types you see are whey, casein, and then plant-based or vegan protein powders. There are, like, you can get beef protein. Like, they do have some other ones. Uh, collagen is um, on the rise, actually, but 80% of collagen research is on the beauty industry, not nutrition. Um, I also think collagen, it's supposed to help with like, um, tendons, but I think that also falls under the, you have to stress your tendon to have them grow. And how do you do that properly? I mean, like, it's not, that's not, a, there's, there's something called functional range conditioning, FRC, that's kind of unlocked. Uh, we actually had a, a team come in and teach us at the dolphins. And I remember a lot of it, but I did you know, I don't try to be a practitioner by any means, but, um, yeah, so it's we'll leave collagen out on this one, but, yeah. um, so the, the big difference, whey and casein are both milk based. Um, basically casein is primarily what becomes cheese. And then whey is the watery substance that's remaining from the cheese making process. And it is either used to make soft cheeses like ricotta, or it's like, I think most of it is dehydrated and turned into protein powder. Um, the big difference between the two is whey is a fast acting protein. It gets in, it gets in the system, it stays liquid and it just, I mean, it, it can be in your system within half an hour. Whereas casein, it gels in the stomach. It reacts with your stomach acid and it gelatinizes. So it's a slow release protein. So you will get like slow infusions of protein over a two hour period or whatever length of period based on your speed of digestion from casein. So it's, it, you know, that's probably where that satiety thing comes from waking up, feeling less hungry is your already your, your, um, digestive system is down regulated because you're asleep. 
and it's this gel protein. So you're getting just a small constant wave of protein the entire night or until it's all used up. Um, and then plant-based obviously would be all from non-animal sources. Uh, important thing to note, if you have milk issues, milk allergies, lactose intolerance, that kind of stuff, you will want to do a plant-based protein because it can cause upset stomach and things like that. Um, but that's very specific to lactose intolerance, mm -hmm. you know, or having an allergy. It's not just like, eh. Um, so yeah, do you have any questions or anything to add before um, I dive deeper into those? Or for really for milk, this is more of a prediction question. Um, it seems like every so often, about quarterly every year, more information comes out. This is oh, this company's mistreating their livestock, things like that, like factory yep, farm. Fair life. We're, we're still yeah. against fair life. I heard they yep. switched farms, but no, that video. Like bothered the crap yeah, out of me. So yeah, yeah. If you here. like Fairlife, um, Organic Valley has it's expensive, but it has the same style. It's called an ultra filtered milk. If you're not familiar with the Fairlife, the way they process it has twice as much protein, half as much carbs, half as much sugar, um, and it's naturally lactose free. So it was a great product until they found out that they were like leaving their cattle in like 110 degree cages and like beating them and you know killing them and stuff like that. So um, the video is horrific. Uh, but Organic Valley is a Wisconsin company, and they're like, they're a good company as far as I know. So you know, if you like that style of milk and like you just like your fair life too much, check that out instead. Yeah. I'm not funded by them. This is not a plug. I just don't like uh, inhumane companies. Yeah. So. Yeah. But so do you? Do you kind of predict that uh, performance nutrition and the fitness industry and everything is going to start to get away from milk based, or is it a little too? cheap and convenient to use milk based. Uh, yeah, I think it's kind of ingrained. Yeah. And the way is king. Mm -hmm. You like so there's several things you have to look at and way can be broken into concentrate and isolate. But to me like the difference is negligible. You know, first off, get a protein powder that tastes good to you. Um but isolate is like more pure it's it's like 95 percent protein whereas concentrates like 90 or so but it's like it's 20 grams and isolate will have like one gram of carb and no fat and then the concentrate will have like two grams of fat and three grams of carbs yeah it technically has a little more calories but if it tastes better if you're gonna drink it like are those 20 or so calories really gonna throw i mean like that's splitting hairs in my opinion so like i don't think there's a huge difference there so we'll just call it whey versus um, but whey's king. I mean, as far as muscle building, whey beats out both casein and plant-based proteins. Um, it just gets in the system better. Like if you can tolerate milk-based, whey is your friend. Um, do I think the satiety benefits of casein overnight are worth buying a casein protein? No. You know, I think if you have whey, just use that. Um, but it boils down to, so bioavailability, um, Animal proteins are about 90 to 95% bioavailable, which means if you drink 20 grams, you will get 18 of those grams. And then plants, their protein typically is about around 70. So if you drink 20 grams, you will get about 14 of those grams. You know, so plant-based proteins are more expensive. They are less bioavailable. If you don't get one that's sourced from multiple types of plants, you don't want just brown rice because then you fall into the um, completion aspect that we talked about last episode. 
um, you know, you want it to have quinoa and coconut. Like, just make sure it's a variety, not just brown rice protein or something yeah. like that. Uh, stay away from soy. Soy is not great. Um, and then, you know, it's, I think it tastes like sand. I, I mean, like, honestly, like Body Logic's the company. The re- I, theirs is one of the better ones I've had. You know, Vegas Sports, okay, but they all feel like sand to me. And, and like, I, so I had a company send me cricket protein. I was very interested in it because it's incredibly sustainable. It's awesome for the environment. It's cheap to manufacture, you know, but people were like, oh, it's crickets. If I put the cricket protein and a plant-based protein side by side mixed, I guarantee you every single person would say that the plant-based protein was the cricket one because it tastes grosser. <laughs> you could taste the hairy legs. <laughs> like, <laughs> No, I, that's what I'm saying is they think they can, but the cricket was more smooth. The plant-based. Oh, I'm, that's what I'm saying. I they misunderstood would, what you said. Yeah, they would pick the plant-based thinking that was the cricket protein because of how sandy it oh, is. Oh, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. The, the cricket protein was better texture and flavor than the plant-based protein yeah. I've had. Yeah, the only plant-based um, protein I've had was from Redcon One, and it was, it was, it tasted like sand. It was terrible. Yeah, you know. So people think like plant-based equals better, and that's not the case. You know. So if you can tolerate whey, that is your friend. It is cheaper. It tastes better. It mixes better, and it has better muscle building improvements. Mm-hmm. Um, but I actually wrote an article on like vegan diets and athletes and I'm not a champion of the vegan diet, but if someone wants to be vegan, I want them to be the best they can at it. Um, you know, but it's just like, it's, it's called the naturalistic fallacy and it's the idea that anything natural is better, you know, and that's not always the case. Yeah. Should we shift more towards natural things? Yes. But cyanide is natural. Cocaine is natural. Those things are not good for you. You know, uh, medicine is not natural, but those things have healing benefits, you know? So that's, it's, it's, it's an improper way to think to say natural equals better or plants are better. No plants are better at some things and they're healthy and everyone should have bountiful amounts of plants in their diet for fiber, for vitamins, for, you know, whatever it is. But, you know, that doesn't mean that plant-based proteins are automatically better. Yeah. And then, um, a quick, Quick little tangent because this was something I thought about yesterday, irrelevant to protein, but so um, still kind of on the topic of milk. There seems there's been a pretty big shift away from cow's milk just because of the mistreatment and everything of livestock towards plant-based milk. Do we are we going to see any sort of fortification of plant-based milk so that we can put it on the same level as cow's milk? Um. Some, some are, uh, like I actually just got one called, it was on sale at Publix. It was called ripple. Okay. And, and it's a, like, I think it's a pea protein, but it's a, it's a plant protein milk. Okay. As opposed to like almond milk. I hate almond milk. Like mm-hmm. if you just want a creamy texture and you can't do milk, like you have a milk allergy or aversion by all means, but almond milk is, is way more wasteful than people think. I think it takes 96 or 116 gallons of water to mm-hmm. make a half a gallon a of almond milk. Water, yeah. You know? Um, not saying that cows don't use a ton of water, but you also get milk, beef, you know, leather, mm-hmm. all kinds of stuff. It's not like, you know, we're making almonds and then they don't even use the almonds. They blanch the almonds down because if their almonds were in the milk, I mean, there's some, there would be a lot more fat, you know, almonds are very yeah. fatty, but there's what, two grams. Um, so there is some fortification like they, like that ripple has protein and I think almond milk has like calcium added to it and stuff like that. But I think it's nutritionless dredge. 
You know, mm -hmm. I think I think it's literally white water. It's a creamy substance to make people feel better about not consuming milk. Yeah. And if you noticed on the milk myth busting, I added milk and in, in exclamation points because my favorite way that this was my major professor, Dr. Ormsby, put it this way, and I loved it. I thought it was just beautiful. This girl um, raised her hand in class one time and asked, like, oh, hey, uh, how do you feel about milk? And she's like, he was like, well, how do you feel about milk? And she, he's like, oh, it's disgusting. It's terrible for you. There's this misbelief that milk robbed your bones of calcium because of the pH change that it caused in your – like things don't change your pH like that. Alkaline no. water is stupid. Yeah. Your body is incredibly good at balancing your pH. And then people will take alkaline water and add lemon to it. It's like why would you take something that's a base <laughs> and add an acid so now it's just regular fucking water? Yeah. Um. But yeah, like don't I, I won't get started. We'll do uh, alkaline water on a different episode. Yeah, that we, can be another myth bust. But so he goes, okay, so you don't like milk? And she said, no. And he goes, then don't drink milk. And he was like, uh, Blair, how, how do you feel about milk? I was like, oh, milk's cool. And he goes, then you you can have milk. You know, but people have to push their agenda, mm -hmm. and it's it's there's it's not rooted in anything. People just think milk is bad for you. Um, I was telling someone today, ninety or so percent of the world is lactose intolerant. Because most of the people of the world live within a certain distance of the equator where there's plenty of sunlight and they get enough sunlight and they have outdoor based uh, living and farming and they do things outdoors. So they have vitamin D provided by the sunlight and vitamin D from like the fish, the shellfish and things like that, that they eat. Um, if you're of white European descent where you are far away from the equator you need that's where it came from is so the natural milk had vitamin d and then we started homogenizing and pasteurizing it and baking the nutrients out and then refortified it but dairy products were used to get that vitamin d you know rickets was a big thing until they discovered that so it really is if you're lactose intolerant if you have issues with milk don't consume it if you don't there is no problem with milk zero problem as a matter of fact a study i found said that those that consistently kept dairy products in their diet either had no change in, in inflammation or inflammation was lower on average. And I think it was all but about four inflammation, inflammation was lower in people that regularly consume dairy. So it does not inflame you. It does not mess your system up. It, you can have lactose intolerance. You can have milk allergies. That's fine. But milk is not bad for you. You know, I think it's, there's this misbelief and people spread it like it's the truth. And it's, it's just a ridiculous myth that needs to die. Yeah, it's that, it, that's always an interesting one. Um, because that is a huge one that has a ton of misinformation behind it. So really, which came first, the misinformation or the movement to try to push away from milk is the question. So was the misinformation spread to help that or did that start it? Probably. I mean, you, it's Which so crazy all this stuff. I mean, yeah, and like, but it always boils down to like, fat was a like was bad in the '80s because the sugar industry lobbied mm -hmm. to make fat bad to take flack off of sugar, you know. So like, there's there's got to be like, I'm sure PETA was behind some of the milk misinformation to mm -hmm. scare people away instead of being able to accurately portray the environmental impact of cattle you know, the environmental impact and things like that, they just fear mongered. You know, I'm not saying Pete is the only one behind this, but I'm sure that's part of it. Yeah. Those um, are probably the biggest name. Yeah. And then, you know, I'm sure somebody, 
said, oh, well, I stopped drinking milk and I feel so much better. And then someone else says, oh, I'll try it. And then they feel better. But it's like when you remove things from your diet, you inadvertently change other things about your diet. You know, so you take milk out, you're probably eating more lean proteins. You're probably eating more vegetables. You're having a salad instead of, mm -hmm. you know, a bowl with cheese or even like a bowl of cereal. You know, so like you can't just take milk out and be like, oh, my God, it was the milk, you know, like because the research isn't there. By all means, if, if taking milk out of your diet has helped, then leave milk out of your diet. But if you like milk and you don't see any adverse effects, have milk. Don't yeah. let anybody convince you milk's bad. Yeah. And that, that is um, a good thing to note that you're, you're probably replacing it with something. If you do want to take milk out of your diet or take anything out of your diet, have something in mind that you're going to replace it with. If not, I, that contributes to this feeling of over-restriction. And so let's say you want, you want to cut milk out. You don't want to see any more of these videos of cows being mistreated. So you cut milk out, you go three weeks, no milk, whereas you were drinking milk daily before, and then... Next thing you know, you crash and you you chug two gallons of milk in a day and now you feel yeah. sick. So if you're going to cut milk or anything out of your diet, have a plan to replace it with something so that you don't you, you don't have a void to fill. It's already filled. Right. And and I I think if you love a food, it should not be cut out of your diet. Yeah. Unless absolutely. there's an allergy. Like I love cheese, but I'm allergic. I mean, that's different, but what's the point in cutting something out that you love? It, yeah. Exactly what Nick just explained is going to happen a hundred percent of the time. If you love ice cream, you say, I'm not eating ice cream anymore. You are going to not eat ice cream for two weeks. And then you're going to eat two pints of Ben and Jerry's ice cream in a night. You know, if you like drinking alcohol and you say, well, I'm not going to drink anymore. You're going to go two weeks or a month without drinking. And then you're going to binge the next time you have a drink, you know? So it, it's the feast and famine fallacy as opposed to just being consistent, allowing yeah. yourself to have the things you like, enjoy them in moderation and you know whether moderation is only drinking once a week or having two drinks a night or whatever it is you know that's what it boils down to yeah. so um and then so that kind of really wraps oh wait actually i do have a myth here um recently the cdc came out and put some statistics on covid covid19 and deaths and there's ton of misinformation that flew around because of that. Everybody was like, oh, the CDC said only 6% of deaths were caused by COVID. So we got to talk about comorbidities. When you die, there are so many factors that go into it. And that's yep. what these comorbidities are. If you have asthma and you died of COVID-19, you died of both. Not yep. asthma, not COVID-19. You died of both. That's why you have that's what these comorbidities are. If you have the flu and COVID, if you have pneumonia and COVID, you died of both. And the way that I like to think of it is, let's say you're at a bar, right? You're at a bar, you're drunk, you get into a bar fight, the person pulls out a knife and stabs you. Did you die because you were drunk, because you got into a bar fight, because the guy had a knife, or did you die because you got stabbed? You got stabbed because, or you died because of all of them. Right. You wouldn't have gotten a bar fight yeah. if you weren't drunk, if you weren't there to begin exactly. with, you know? Exactly. And I, yeah, I think that's important. Like, uh, AIDS, for example, doesn't directly kill anybody. Mm -hmm. It makes you more susceptible to like, I think most people die of like pneumonia or something yeah. like that when, you know, but yeah, you might not have died of that pneumonia, but you have COVID mm -hmm. and now you did, you know? So uh, yeah, there's comorbidities and 
now I don't even know what to do with the numbers on COVID because Donald Trump started his own like task force that all the numbers have to go through. There's already debates on how many people are dying and this, that. Mm -hmm. And then I love the, well, I don't know anybody that died personally. I know a lot of nurses and they all know people, they watch people die every day. Like COVID's Mm -hmm. real. It is killing people. Yeah. So if you're one of those quack jobs that think COVID isn't real and nobody's, I don't know anybody. Like, do you know anybody that died in 9-11? So can I say that none of those 3,000 deaths actually happened since you yeah. didn't know anybody personally that died in 9-11? Yeah. But it's, you know, people remember that for, what, 20 years now? Mm-hmm. And we do nothing about the hundreds of thousands of people that are being reported dying every day or, or that so far because of COVID. You know, it's important. And just because you don't know somebody that died doesn't mean it's not happening. So, you know, but yeah, the comorbidity thing is important. Like it's, it's multifactorial. It's not just, you know, cut and dry. So, and if you don't quite understand like the medical literature, like the the term comorbidities, if you're, if you don't know that a whole lot about medical terminology, that's, that's a rough one. Comorbidities, you know, co means morbidities. You may or may not know, Leave the interpretations up to the medical professionals, please. Yeah. <laughs> um, listen to what they say. Listen to a lot of them so that then you can create your own your own. There idea are there. bad doctors out there. There, there, there are, are doctors that doctors. got C's. Yeah. But that a doctor that got C's in med school still knows more mm-hmm. about this than Joe Schmo with an yep. internet connection. And the you step know, exams I mean, are becoming pass-fail. So step exams are the exams that you take in med school to move on. I, I believe they're changing those to pass fail. So you won't know if, I mean, you didn't know before, but your doctor might not know if they're, they got a 90 on their step exam or if they got a 72. The minimum, yeah. yeah. Like, so look, the dumbest doctor to graduate med school is still a doctor. So yeah. get your information from everywhere, from the people who are qualified and have the education to interpret these things and then make your decision. Yeah, but doctors are like dietitians or therapists or any, like, you need to find someone you resonate with. You know, every dietitian isn't going to be for you. Every therapist, you you shouldn't just go to a therapist and assume they have your, I mean, they should have your best interest, but they just might not vibe with you and that's okay. Yeah. You know, so like take the advice from the people you trust, you know, and that's fine, but also get rid of confirmation bias. A lot of people have, I mean, everybody has confirmation bias. If you don't think you have confirmation bias, you do. Yeah. I do. I, I absolutely do. And I try my best to look up the information. But if you believe something, instead of simply looking up things that support that, also try to find things that refute mm-hmm. that. It is okay to be wrong in the path to becoming right. Yeah. Yeah. You it's, know, so it's more that's, beneficial that's, to be wrong. I guess that's my sign off too is, yeah. is the confirmation bias thing. But I do have some, some interesting news and we'll see how this plans out. So this is not written in stone, but I talked to one of my old players, Kiko Alonso. He's currently with the Saints. And after this season, he is very interested in hopping on and doing a and a with us. Nice. Um, so, yeah, look out if you're if you're interested yeah. in a football or the NFL out there, listeners. Uh, we should have an episode, you know, probably sometime in January, February, I would imagine, after the season's over um, with Kiko Alonso. He's a linebacker. He played at Oregon. He's a great dude. Takes He's a very interesting guy. Takes incredible care of his nutrition. Um, so I, I'm excited to have him potentially on the show um, as a guest. You know, we won't have like a – topic it'll just be yeah. like Q&A with Kiko Alonso so that's awesome yeah um I was thinking too uh for our next episode I know um saturated fat and cholesterol 
I know that's something you're well, passionate I want to do a I'm fat really and a carb episode. That. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so definitely let's, let's go for the fat one next episode. Yep. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll do that. Cool. Sweet. Um, so yeah, everybody, um, we're trying to be better about asking YouTube, like comment, hit the bell in the corner, subscribe to the channel. If you got questions, if you got suggestions, if you want to hear a certain topic, let us know. Um, share it with your friends, uh, podcast app, leave us a review, like, like a rating, if nothing else, but a review would be nice. Mm -hmm. Um, and get your friends to subscribe if, if you like the channel. Um, yeah, you know, we're, we're still in the prelim phases where we're just trying to bulk up the number of episodes we have before we go crazy sharing it. But the more, more subscribers, the better. Um, and let us know how we're doing. Yeah. And if you want to, if you want to reach out to us, you can find me on Instagram. It's, um, high on underscore health. So H I O N underscore health. I know I haven't posted in a while, but I promise I'm there every day. So yeah, I, yeah. uh, I, I switched back to Zorg underscore industries. Mm -hmm. I'm a, it's a fifth element reference. Cause I'm a huge nerd. Um, I didn't like the, like I said, I'm not good at marketing. I didn't like uh -huh. the grind of, of marketing on Instagram. I'd mm -hmm. rather just be myself and post what I want. Yeah. And I don't use Instagram as a huge, it's a good place to contact me. Um, if you don't use Instagram, you can email me. It's humanelementnutrition at gmail.com. It's pretty straightforward. Uh, website's the same, humanelementnutrition.com. Um, you know, so there's multiple ways to contact me. I'm, I'm just, I'm not going to be a slave to Instagram. It felt like pulling teeth. So I switched back and it's just, it's a business account, but I use it for personal reasons. So yeah, um, yeah. yeah. reach out, subscribe, share, you know, get, tell your friends. We're really cool. Yeah. And if we're not cool, Lie to him, please. <laughs> so, all right. We'll see you guys later. Thank you for listening. Yeah, take it easy.